Um, good to be sharing God's word with you again. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 48. Genesis chapter 48. And it's the same passage that uh, Brother Paul read this morning as well, but we'll read from verses 1 to 6 to start us off. Genesis 48, verse 1. And it came to pass after these things that one told Joseph, Behold, thy father is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And one told Jacob and said, Behold, thy son Joseph cometh unto thee. And Israel strengthened himself and sat upon the bed. And Jacob said unto Joseph, God Almighty appeared unto me in Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said unto me, Behold, I will make thee fruitful and multiply thee and I will make of thee a multitude of people and will give this land to thy seed after thee for an everlasting possession. And now thy two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, which were born unto thee in the land of Egypt before I came unto thee into Egypt are mine as Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. And thy issue which thou begettest after them shall be thine, and shall be called after the name of their brethren in their inheritance. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll, uh, we'll ask for his guidance this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for your precious and perfect word. We pray that as we look into it now, that our eyes would be open to its truths, that we would hear the message that you would have for us, and that you would use me to share this with my brethren here. Lord, I pray for your blessing upon me and upon every head that is bowed here now. And we pray that through this word, our faith might grow, and that we might rejoice in what we have in Jesus Christ, our Saviour, and glorify him in our lives. We ask these things in his precious name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so just a quick recap. So in our last sermon, we saw that this famine was continuing in Egypt, and Joseph was very busy about trying to keep everything under control and, and they were running out of grain. And remember, if you remember, the, the people had sold their, their, had given money for this grain that, that, uh, that Pharaoh and Joseph had stored up in these huge uh, storehouses, and, but they'd run out of money. And so they gave their cattle and then they gave their lands as well. And so during this time, Pharaoh's wealth uh, accumulated dramatically and Joseph was very faithful in making sure that everyone was fed, but at the same time, he was serving Pharaoh. Now, during while the Egyptians were selling their lands and, their, and giving everything to uh, Pharaoh, the uh, Israelites were actually in the land of Goshen, and they were getting more and more work because the Pharaoh had accumulated all this cattle that he'd taken upon himself, that he'd uh, taken as payment for the grain, and the Israelites were shepherds and cattlemen. And the Bible says that they were increasing in wealth and in responsibility. So they were flourishing during this time. But at this particular time, um, Jacob knew that he was coming to the end of his life. So he called his son and promised and made him promise that when he passed away, that he would bring him back and bury him where his father was buried. Okay, where Isaac and Abraham were buried, he wanted to be buried back in Canaan. And Joseph made that promise. And so now we get to this particular chapter, chapter 48. And what's interesting about this particular chapter is it focuses on Joseph's two children. Now, they are Jacob's 
grandchildren. And there's no mention of any other grandchildren. And so God makes a particular big deal about these two grandchildren and what happens in this particular episode at this particular time. And so the question is, why this big focus on Ephraim and Manasseh, who are his, his grandchildren? And he had plenty of other grandchildren that were already born to him as well. So that's what I'm hoping to answer in this sermon for you. And before I continue, I want to apologise because last time I gave you the impression that when at the end of chapter um, 47, that Jacob had bowed his head upon his bed head. It's, and I, I took that and I shared that as that, that was the end of his life, but it wasn't. He had, he had bent himself down upon his bedhead as an exhaustion. He was exhausted. So if he died then, then this chapter doesn't make sense, right? So that's my apology to you, okay? All right, so let's, let's look at what this, uh, what this chapter is about. So we have here to commence with the meeting of the father and a son. And so verse 1 says, And it came to pass after these things that one told Joseph, Behold, thy father is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And one told Jacob and said, Behold, thy son Joseph cometh unto thee. And Israel strengthened himself and sat upon the bed. And so we have here a father uh, sick on his bed near death. And Joseph gets news about it. And he prepares himself and he decides to take his two sons with him to see his father. And at the same time, when Jacob hears that Joseph is on his way, he strengthens himself and gets ready for this uh, meeting. You know, if you've ever had um, a loved one in hospital who is literally on their deathbed and you hear news that you'd better get to the hospital um, because they, you, they, you won't have much more time before they pass away. I, most of you who've been in that situation, and I have a few times, you'll understand um, how distressing it can be. Um, when you're rushing to get to the hospital or when you don't know what you're going to find when you get there. That final visit, though, can become a very significant and important time because it may be the last conversation you have with that person before they pass away. It may be the last time you see their face um, while they're still alive. And so while you're on your way to that conversation, you may be playing in your mind, as many of us do, the conversation and how it might go. You know, what am I going to say to them? What are the last words that you say to someone before they're about to pass away? What are those words? Maybe you'll be thinking about what I never told them throughout my whole life. Maybe I've never told them that I love them. I've never told them about how, how much good they've done to me. I've never appreciated them, maybe the way that I was supposed to. And so you might be heading towards that conversation, understanding that last conversation is going to be the last thing you ever say to each other. Maybe you're thinking on your way to that particular place of the times you spent together and how you may not have those ever again. Maybe you're on your way there worried about the family and your other loved ones and how they're going to be affected by the loss of that person. You know, saying goodbye is never easy. Now, we have an unbelievable blessing as, as, as Christians, as the children of God, knowing that we are going to go to heaven. You see, there's no other faith in the world that has that. There's no other belief system in the world that when you die, you know where you're going. You know where you're, where you're going to be headed. Not because of that we're any good, but because of what Jesus has done for us. And so once you receive eternal life as a gift from God, 
your life changes. And that's why for us, it, you know, it doesn't make too much difference, you know, whether we live or whether we die. And Paul, the Apostle Paul said, you know, in his life, he was torn between these two things of wanting to go home and be with the Lord, but knowing that there was a need to be here as well to serve him and to be a blessing to others. And so he, there's this tension going on, and that's the tension that is a healthy tension, by the way. It's not a bad one. We should want to be with the Lord. There should be a desire to see his face, to be with the one who loves us more than anyone else. And so there's this desire that we have and, and almost an unflinching uh, uh, boldness when it comes to death. In other, word, in other words, death can't do anything to us. It doesn't matter. And it's the very reason that Christians, when they were being thrown to the lions in the Colosseum and, and lit up as, as, as sta on, uh, on, on stakes and used as torches in Rome, in the early Rome, when they were trying to annihilate the belief or the gospel, that they went singing. I mean, who goes singing while they're being torn apart by lions? What type of people are happy to die? This type of people. Because the only way you can be happy about going and being torn apart or being lit as a torch is where you know you're going. Is where, when you know that on the other side of that door, you are going to see the one who loves you and gave his life for you. But saying goodbye is never an easy thing, even for believers. I mean, we're going to say goodbye to, to Guy and Lois. And we're sad because they're going to go. We, we may not see them for a very long time. Maybe we'll see them in the air. Who knows? But there's always a difficult thing about saying goodbye to people. And it's, it's true for us as well. It's never easy to say goodbye, even if it is for a time only. You see, when they stoned Stephen, the scriptures say in Acts 8 2, it says, And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. You see, they all cried and lamented over him. You, you, may, you may think, all right, that person's going to heaven. It doesn't mean you're going to miss them less. You're still going to miss them. And when Paul called the pastors of Ephesus to him for one last time, and he basically told them, you're not going to see my face again, the Bible says that and, and records, and they all wept sore. And they fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake that they should see his face no more. So as believers, we have this, this blessing of knowing where we're going and also the blessing of if you have a loved one who's a believer in Christ and who's received eternal life too, you know you're going to see them one day, right? So that's a huge blessing. But what about the ones who don't? We should be all the more moved. We should lament more. We should be moved more by people who don't know the Lord when they pass away. And when their loved ones who have no hope as we have, have to deal with that loss of never seeing them again. I often wonder how people deal with loss um, when you have no hope about the other side or where you don't know or where you may you may be completely unsure you see most people who profess a faith in god have no certainty at all they're on a whim and a prayer essentially hoping that something might be there hoping that it may be 
partly right what they believe because most of them don't believe anything anyway. And so the, the religious system they're in, uh, uh, they're hoping that maybe they've just done enough to be able to balance that, you know, those, those scales in the, on the right side and God made you know, may look, out, you know, look after them and, and give them eternal life based on their merit. But that's all false hope, isn't it? Because there is no balancing act at the end. Man is completely devoid. The Bible says that every act that we think is good is like a filthy rag, like presenting something that's absolutely dirty and repulsive to God and saying, hey, look at that, look how good that is, Lord. Take that as a, uh, as a payment for me coming into heaven. And God says doesn't match it doesn't make up for all the sins you've done all the crimes you've committed so we know that there is only one payment for sin and that is jesus dying on a cross and shedding his blood paying for the penalty of our own crimes against god but what do we do with these people that are around us and that don't have this hope well our call is to show them hope is to lead them to hope is to share the gospel with them because that is the only avenue, the Bible says, the only path, the only door that will lead someone to the hope that we have. And here we see Joseph facing this realisation that this may be the last time that he sees his father. The beloved, his beloved father who had, who had showed him so much love when he was young and now had finally been joined back together with him. But his father was going to be gone in a short time by the looks of it. Looks of it. And so if you can imagine the call that came to Joseph and when it says someone went and told him and they said, you know, your, your father's sick in bed. Now that sick in bed means a sick unto death, which means he's about to go. And so Joseph's thinking to himself, oh, I've got to go. I've got to get to dad as quickly as I can. But what does he do? He actually gets his two sons ready. Come on, boys, come, let's get ready, because I want you to see your, father, your grandfather before he goes. And so he readies his boys. And the Bible says here that Jacob, upon hearing upon Joseph's arrival, gets himself ready. He's about to do something that's very important. In his mind, he's preparing himself for this time, because this is a time that he's going to do something that hasn't been done before. And it says that Israel, which is the other name, the name that God gave Jacob, he strengthened himself and sat upon the bed. And look at verse 3. It says, and, and Jacob, so they've come together now. Joseph's presented himself before his father, who's, who's lying in bed. And Jacob says unto Joseph, God Almighty appeared unto me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said unto me, Behold, I will make thee fruitful and multiply thee, and I will make of thee a multitude of people, and will give this land to thy seed after thee for an everlasting possession. And so we see that the first thing that Jacob speaks about and that refers to in this conversation, this last conversation with Joseph is, Joseph, um, the God that we know blessed me and made me a promise. So he starts off with God. So I want to go back to that promise that God made. Go back to Genesis chapter 28. Because he's referring back to a time that was well before this. And just as God had made a promise to Abraham, he made the promise also to Jacob here. 
And this is that special encounter that he has with God. And he sees the Lord. Genesis chapter 28 verse 10 tells us, And Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he lighted upon a certain place and tarried there all night, because the sun was set. And he took of the stones of that place and put them for his pillows and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, thy father, and the God of Isaac. The land wherein, whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south. And in thee, and in thy seed, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with thee, and I will keep thee in all places whither thou goest, and will bring thee again into this land, for I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. Now, what a promise from God, huh? Imagine being told that, that in your seed, in your descendants, the entire world was going to be blessed. I'm going to give you this land and you are going to grow and you're going to possess all of it. I'm going to give it to you for an eternal inheritance. And through your seed, the entire world, all the families of the world will be blessed. Now, you don't know necessarily what that means, but wow, that gives you a, a sense of purpose, doesn't it? Imagine holding on to that sort of thing. That, that is a promise that God's made to me. And through my family, through my descendants, the whole world is going to be blessed. Well, that's, that's something you're not going to forget too easily. In verse 19 of that same chapter, it says, And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of that city was called Luz at the first. You see, so he, that, was, that was the name that he mentioned in Genesis 48. So it was called Luz, but he changed the name to Bethel. Not only had God promised Jacob the land of Canaan and his descendants, but that his seed would be as the dust of the earth, and in thy seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And that's, once again, an amazing promise. On his, on his deathbed, this was a promise that he was holding on to. You know, if you're on your last moments on this earth, what are you going to be thinking? What are you going to be holding on to? What's going to be important to you? Because I'll tell you something. If you only have a few moments to live or a few days to live, all the garbage that the world chases after, all the things that we might still hold on to and, and think are important, all of a sudden don't have any meaning. What has meaning then becomes narrowly focused to God, to the things that are important, the things that are eternal, to the things that are, that are waiting on the other side. And so for Jacob, this promise has meaning. This is important. If anything that will come out of your last moments on the earth, it's what you really believe. No need to play the game anymore. No need to, to do the charade, show everyone what type of wonderful person you are. 
or to cover things up or put the put the masquerade on and you know and pretend and play the game that the world plays no that's the time when you actually things become real that's how we should live all the time i remember hearing this uh this saying once that says that we should live as christians as believers we should live as though christ died yesterday that he rose today and that he's coming tomorrow i think that's a good that's a good way to live be ready for christ to come tomorrow but that he's with you today and he only rose yesterday which means you have great rejoicing let's continue though look at what happens in verse 5 it says and now thy two sons genesis 48 verse 5 He does something very strange that hasn't been done before. He says to Joseph, his son, and now thy two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, which were born unto thee in the land of Egypt before I came unto thee into Egypt, are mine. As Reuben and Simeon, his first two borns, he says, they shall be mine. What's going on here? He's adopting Joseph's children as his own. The last thing you do is a strange thing, isn't it? Why would you adopt your son's own children who don't need adopting into your family and treat them as if they're your own sons? Why would he do that? He goes, they'll be just like Reuben and Simeon are to me. They are going to be mine. And I think, I suspect Joseph would have gone, what? Like, what are you doing? Jacob, by a special act, was adopting his grandchildren in a way that they would no longer be reckoned as his grandchildren, but from a legal point of view, were going to be reckoned as his own children. Well, what does that mean and why would he do that? It's because he was now, he knew that the inheritance that came down to his 12 sons would be split up evenly among the 12, correct? Now what he was doing, he was actually including those two grandchildren in that inheritance so that they would receive an equal portion along the other, with the other 12 sons. In other words, Joseph, who was due for his inheritance, his portion in the inheritance, would now get two portions, not one. Does that make sense to everyone? He would receive double the actual blessing. And so, by adopting his two children, the birthright, the promise that God made to Jacob were now going to be given directly to Joseph's two children as equal shareholders. What he was doing essentially was transferring the birthright to Joseph. And so his posterity would have a double portion forever. And it's an amazing thing when you think of it. Remember Joseph throughout his life and throughout this whole series I've been sharing with you becomes a picture of Jesus, right? He's a picture of Christ. And so in doing what he did and Joseph bringing his two children to his father and his father adopting them into his own family, you know who that pictures? That pictures us. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. 
Ephraim and Manasseh picture the believer now and what happens to us. Now, just understand this. Jacob was giving Joseph the birthright. So the firstborn would normally get double the portion of everyone else. If you had five kids, the first one would get double everyone else. You'd split it up by six, and then the first one would get two portions, right? So this is what he was doing to Joseph now. But look at what it tells us here. And now he was adopting his own children into his own family directly. Ephesians 1.3 tells us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. You know, there's one thing that we know about the relationship between Jacob and Joseph is that Joseph was his beloved. Joseph was the one that he loved the most. And now he was bestowing a special blessing upon Joseph and he's adopting his own kids into his family so they become adopted. And guess what? That's what happens to us. In Christ, in Christ, because he is the beloved, all of us who are in him now become adopted into God's family by a special act of grace, purely by his own good pleasure. Ancient Jews observed the law of the firstborn, as I've said, or the one that had the birthright. You'll notice that the story between Jacob and Esau. The Bible says that Esau didn't care about his birthright, didn't care about it at all. So Jacob ended up, sell, ended up selling him a pot of beans and Esau sold his birthright for that pot of beans. And Jacob took that birthright from him. When it comes time to, uh, to bless, the firstborn or the one with the birthright actually receives a double portion. And so in this case, Jacob has 12 sons. Joseph is one of them. And he gives Joseph the birthright. Now that means something, doesn't it? That means the firstborn, Reuben, has lost it, doesn't it? Because you can't have two now with a birthright. So Reuben has lost his birthright as the firstborn child. And so... What, it, what essentially happened with Reuben is that he lost his double portion. It didn't stop being a son, but he lost his birthright, which was given to Joseph. And the reason he lost it, if you go forward to Genesis 49, verse 3, is that Reuben sinned. And we'll, we'll have a look at First Chronicles as well, just to confirm this. Genesis chapter 49, verse 3. When God, when after chapter 48, where Jacob blesses Ephraim and Manasseh, 
49 now is the blessings upon all of his sons, okay? And so in verse 3 it says there, and we'll look at this again uh, probably in a couple of weeks' time, Reuben, he says, Thou art my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. But look at what he says to him here in verse 4, Unstable as water, thou shalt not excel. Because thou wentest up to thy father's bed and defilest thou it, he went up to my couch. What's he saying here? Well, Reuben slept with Bilhah, his father's concubine, who was essentially his wife. And so if you go back to First Chronicles chapter 5, it explains to us there that because of what he did, he slept with his father's concubine in his father's bed, um, he lost his birthright. So, First Chronicles chapter five, verse one explains to us exactly what happened or what that resulted in. It says there, First Chronicles five one. Now, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but for as much as he defiled his father's bed. His birthright was given unto the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel. And the gene genealogy is not to be reckoned after the birthright. So, so Reuben lost it, and, and the scriptures explain that he lost it and that his double portion went to Joseph's sons. There's a lesson in that for us, isn't there? Um, Reuben didn't lose his, his uh, identity as a son, but he lost a double portion. He lost his birthright because of sin. And sin has consequences. Sin actually defiles things. It makes things always worse. There are consequences to pay for sin always. And Reuben lost what he had because he didn't value it enough. And we need to be very mindful that we don't have the same mentality as Reuben. That we think that sin is something that doesn't have consequences, that isn't a problem because we're now saved. No, there are, there are consequences. There are plenty of people who have destroyed their lives and ruined the lives of people around them because of sin. And sin destroys and infects everything it touches. It is a very nasty thing. And we should see it for what it is. It is the breaking of God's law. It is the defiling of whatever is good. And it is the direct antithesis of the one we call our saviour and our father. The exact opposite. So if we are God's children, if we are Christians, if we are born again believers, if we are the ambassadors of heaven, then sin should not have a place in our lives. We should as much as possible avoid this thing. We should as much as possible uh, run away from it. In fact, one of the, one of the things the Bible tells us uh, is the strategy you should use for sin is compared to Satan. The Bible tells us if Satan comes against you, you should withstand him. Okay? But when it comes to sin, the Bible doesn't say withstand it. The Bible says run from it. Run away from it. Because the moment you begin to mess around with it and play around with this thing, it will be like playing around with a rattlesnake. 
It's shaking its tail, making a nice noise. And you might think that, you, that it's okay, but once it bites, its venom will actually destroy you. So keep away from sin. And this is the, the consequence of sin that Reuben has lost his birthright. And we see the faithfulness of Joseph as the opposite of this. Joseph has been faithful the whole time. And now he has been given, or his ch- direct children have been given the birthright. Okay? For us, from the point of view of Jesus Christ, he is the firstborn. He has the birthright. He has all the privileges that go with being the one and only, not just the firstborn. So the Bible tells us that he is special. And because he is special, because God sees him as special and he pours out his love on his own son, we are blessed because we have been found in him, because we've, we've been joined to him. So Jacob, in doing this act, has pictured the relationship that we, that we would be given as the children of God. Not because we had done anything. You see, Ephraim and Manasseh were still kids. They hadn't had a chance to do anything good or bad. They hadn't earned their stripes. They hadn't deserved this, really. But it was simply because Jacob chose to do that. Because of his great love for Joseph, his son, he gave this blessing to his children. Turn with me just for a moment to Romans 8.29. I want to share with you just some passages about the fact that Jesus is mentioned as the firstborn in the Bible a number of times and in a number of different aspects. And the firstborn here, whenever you see the word firstborn, it doesn't just mean the lineage, like it means the first in terms of a number of sequence. It means the preeminent one, the one who has the privileges, the one who is the highest. So Romans 8.29 tells us, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the, to the image of his son, that he might be the, look at the word, Firstborn among many brethren. So Jesus is the firstborn among many brethren. Believe it or not, the Bible calls us his brethren. His brethren. But he is the firstborn among us. He is the one with all the privileges. He is the one that we look to for leadership. Turn to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Colossians is one of my favourite favorite books because it describes Jesus so clearly and his identity. Colossians 1.15 says about Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, of every creature. He is the preeminent over every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him, Jesus Christ, and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. You know, he holds everything together as well. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the head of his church, not me, not anyone else. He is the head of the church, who is the beginning of, the firstborn from the dead, 
that in all things he might have the preeminence. He is so preeminent. He is always first. He is the creator of all things, the head of the church, even the head of, of the, the, whoever's uh, risen again from the grave. He is the head of new life. And turn finally to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. And this speaks about us as believers and about what we have in the church and what the church's identity is here. Hebrews 12, 22. It says, but ye, that's speaking of us, are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, that's Jesus, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Praise God for that. That God has declared us just, and and he he will make us perfect. But look at this. He is the firstborn of the church. He is the big brother. He is the one we look up to to solve everything. He is the one who leads us. Jesus is the firstborn, the only begotten of God himself. He is the inheritor of all things. He is the firstborn among every person who's born again and saved. He is the cornerstone of of the church he is the firstborn of every creature because he made every creature and he's the firstborn from the dead because he conquered death and he cannot be beaten by it the firstborn is the one who holds the preeminence reuben lost his inheritance because he didn't care about it joseph becomes a picture of jesus whose blessed whose children are blessed because of his faithfulness and it's because Jesus is faithful that we receive the blessing. You know, if you look at it even from the aspect of the angels, imagine the, 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 the inheritance of the angels. You know, the, these beings that were created, that when, the, when the, the Bible says that when the earth was created, they all leaped for joy and shouted when they saw God creating the earth. Can you imagine the the inheritance and the blessings that they had? Yet a third of them sinned and fell away. They lost their own inheritance because they didn't care about what they already had in heaven because they wanted something else. They wanted the earth as well. They wanted to defile mankind. They wanted heaven under their own dominion. And so... If you look at Satan and the fallen angels, they're almost like a bit like Reuben that lost what they had. But you know something that's interesting? What's interesting is that what they lost, we gained. I'm not sure if you understand it, but we weren't created for heaven. Adam and Eve were created from the dust of the earth and were created to live on the earth. They were created tripartite beings like god is a a, a, a a triune being but god made us with three parts god made us with a, a spirit a soul and a body funny enough because each of those connect to god but because of our fall even though the devil may have thought he won a, won a wonderful victory over us and that he had dominion over us now because we lost our dominion of this planet to him so the bible now calls him the god of the earth 
the prince of the power of the air. It calls him the God of this world. Right? It's because men have lowered themselves to him and that he has held man in, in actual dominion and under his control from the fall. But what's amazing about it is that we weren't created for heaven, but because of our fall and Christ's salvation of us, he made us fit for heaven now as well. You see, we weren't designed to live in heaven. We weren't designed for that. But now we have, we will be given both earth and heaven. They lost heaven and the earth. And we were given heaven as a result of the wonderful salvation that we have. You see, Jesus is preparing a place for us in heaven. And it's going to be this amazing thing that he brings together, that brings together earth and heaven. But it's heavenly. And so we have this amazing privilege that we didn't have when we were first created. God's added something new to us. And you know what he added to us? Himself. God is now intertwined with man. Which is an amazing thought when you think of it. That his own son, that God has connected himself to us through his own son. Who is the man Jesus Christ in heaven. Let's continue. Verse 6, Genesis 48, verse 6. So he says, he gives this special um, privilege and blessing to Ephraim and Manasseh. And then he says in verse 6, And thy issue, which means all the children that come after now, which thou begettest after them, shall be thine. Not his, not Jacob's, but Joseph. So if, Joseph, if you have any more children, they are going to be still yours. But, and they shall be called after the name of their brethren and their inheritance. In other words, they're going to come after Manasseh and Ephraim. They're going to be under their inheritance. So he only gives this to two, to those two, the two that were born to Joseph in Egypt. And so why is this so important to Jacob? Why all this talk of inheritance and, give, and granting these two the children, his grandchildren, such a special privilege, it's because he believed God's promises. It's because that was the most important thing to him. And he wanted to bless Joseph through his lineage. He believed with all of his heart that God had given him the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. And in doing this, he was grant, granting Joseph's line an extra blessing, a double blessing. Verse 7 now says, And as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died by me in the land of Canaan. That was Joseph's mother. In the way. And when yet there was a little way to come unto Ephrath, and I buried her there in the way of Ephrath, the same is Bethlehem. So have a look at that. The mother of Joseph, Rachel, um, is buried. Joseph, who is a picture of Jesus Christ, she's buried in a place called Bethlehem Ephrath, which is the place where Jesus would be born. And later we find Mary, who would have the privilege of carrying the incarnate word of God and gave birth to a saviour in that little town. Let's continue. Verse 8. And it says, And Israel beheld Joseph's sons and said, Who are these? Apparently he hadn't seen them before. 
And Joseph said unto his father, They are my sons, whom God hath given me in this place. And he said, Bring them, I pray thee, unto me, and I'll bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim for age, so that he could not see. And he brought them near unto him, and he kissed them and embraced them. Now what a touching description of an encounter, probably the one and only encounter, the final encounter of a grandfather who has now adopted these two kids for himself and these children who were now his and Joseph. He blesses them and hugs them as you would expect. But what a wonderful picture of the love that God the Father has for us. That's the type of love God has for us. I mean, I can't wait for the day when we get to heaven and we are everything that he has told us that we will be and we get to see him and embrace and kiss. That's how much God loves us. God loves us with a love that we can't even comprehend. And Jacob, even in his uh, imperfect life, is a picture of God's amazing love for us. So I'll look forward to that day when we will see our Father face to face and see our Saviour as well. Turn to John chapter 14 with me for a moment. John chapter 14. We don't need to wait for that day when we see God the Father face to face and when we see our, our Saviour face to face to experience his love. We can experience his love now. And that is the life of a Christian. You see, the Christian life is not a journey to God. It is a journey with God. That is the defining difference between a religion and between salvation in Jesus Christ. We are walking with our Saviour. We are not walking to a Saviour. We are walking with him and he is never leaving us nor forsaking us until he brings us home all to, and we're all to, together. But look at this because you can experience the love of the Father now. And if you haven't experienced the love of the Father, if you don't know that God the Father loves you, then maybe you haven't experienced salvation yet. Maybe you don't know what salvation is. But the salvation be, is, is available to us because God loved us. It's only because God loved us, not because we were lovable, there's just nothing lovable about us. But because God chose to love us, that he sent his only begotten son into this world to rescue us from our own defilement and sin and iniquity. But have a look at John 14, 21, because Jesus is explaining to his disciples there about the love of God, right? And he says, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my father. And I will love him and will manifest myself to him. And Judas said unto him, not Iscariot, another Judas, Lord, how is it that thou will manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words. And my father will love him. And we will come unto him and make our abode with him. We'll make, we will live with him. How can a man love Jesus? Well, have a look what it says here. By having and keeping his commandments. You might think, well, how many commandments are there? Well, I'll tell you the most important commandment is the gospel. 
The gospel is to admit that you're a sinner and that you, you call to, to God to save you and receive the salvation through Jesus Christ, to believe that Jesus died for your sins on a cross and that that blood that flowed through his veins and onto that ground and onto that rugged cross actually is the same blood that God uses to cleanse us from all our sin and stain. When you put your faith in Jesus to save you, that is the most important commandment. By knowing and keeping his words. Yet how can a man know and keep his words and not know the Bible? You see, salvation comes through God's word. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If you remove the word of God from the equation, you don't have Jesus' words. You can't have Jesus' commands. You have something else in its place. And the turning from the words of Jesus in our day is an ominous sign that the people don't love the Lord. If you take the Bible out of the church, which is what's happened essentially to most of Christendom, what have you got left in its place? It's not loving Jesus. It's loving something else. If you remove the words of Jesus, because the words of Jesus we have in our Bibles. We have the command of Jesus in our Bibles. And so what we have in our day is not the love of the Lord, but an idol made unto the image of man. Instead of loving him, they love themselves because they've rejected his commandments. The gospel being the first and foremost the command to be saved from your sin. Instead of sin, our culture is actually reaping the benefits of, the, of this uh, type of uh, iniquity by removing God's word, by denying its existence, by, by ridiculing it and, and removing it from churches. And so they've run, on this, they've run to this course um, like being in the middle of the ocean with no, with no bearings on where, what's le left, right or north, south, east and west. You see, the Bible is unchanging. God's word and God's, God's laws are unchanging. God's laws are perfect and his word is perfect. But when you discard that, what have you got left other than just a moralistic duplicity and, rel uh, and then relative to everyone else, which is nothing? And so they're going around in circles trying to work out what's right and what's wrong. And so we have, instead of grief over sin in our culture today, we see this sin paraded in the streets and in every form of communication that we have known to us. Whether it's in TV, whether it's in print, whether it's on the internet, it's rife and filled with sin and iniquity. So the sin that was, that was um, seen as something horrific a number of years ago now is paraded in the streets now is celebrated and we should be aware of that we should be very careful of it so we should hold all the firmer to god's word because it's only through god's word that we can actually love god properly without without god's word you cannot love the lord you cannot because who are you loving what are you loving if you don't love God for who he is and what he says he is, you've made up another God for yourself. The Bible calls that idolatry. So let's stick to the word of God and let's love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul and with all our strength, which means knowing his word and living it.
and choosing to live it. No one else is going to live that word for you. You have to live it yourself. You have to make the decision yourself. No one's going to answer for you at the end of your life. When you come to the end, if you find yourself in a bed like Jacob, no one's going to be there to, to, to make up for all the lost time that you've thrown away. No one's going to be there. You, have your, you might have your family around you, but they will be helpless. The only one who can help you is the one you can turn to now. The one who can give you meaning and purpose now. The one who can save you now and the one who can teach you right from wrong and in which direction to, to, to walk in. Because everything that's done for Jesus will last. It's eternal. But everything that's not done, done for Jesus is going to be gone. Not going to be here. So what do you want to carry into eternity with you? That's the question if you're a believer today. What do you want to carry with you? you know, Guy and Lois are heading off to England. Well, the United Kingdom, whatever they call it over there. They've got their bags packed, right? You going to leave anything back in Australia? No, nothing. Don and Weiner have got their bags packed, right? The question is, what are you packing for heaven? What are you going to bring with you there? Oh, you're saved. The ticket's bought, right? And Jesus paid for the ticket. The question is, what are you bringing with you? Because when you present yourself to God the Father and you go with an empty suitcase, whose eyes are going to be filled with tears when you've got nothing to show, when you've wasted your entire life or when you've wasted most of your life chasing after the foolish things of the world? We have chased after your own flesh, your own heart's desires, where you've put your life before God. And at the end, there's nothing to show. Oh, you'll be in there. You'll be saved. Lovely, I'm there. But then what have you got to give your saviour? And so verse 11 says, And Israel said unto Joseph, and this is a beautiful verse, just to close up with. He said, I had not thought to see thy face, and lo, God hath showed me also thy seed. Isn't that a beautiful thought? Jacob thought that he'd never see Joseph again. He thought he was dead at 17 years of age, torn apart by wild animals. And here he is at the end of his life and he's seeing his son again. And he sees him as ruler of Egypt and he's saying, I never thought I'd see you again. And here it is, you're here with me. And not only that, I'm going to see your sons too. I'm going to see your children. What a beautiful sentiment. And he's thankful. And you can see that, you can hear the, the thanks in his, in his own words. Because he never thought he would have this special blessing. What a blessing. And it was God, he says, who granted him. God has showed me also those. He admits, once again, he goes back to God. He says, God actually gave me this mercy. Once again, Jacob acknowledges the hand of God at work in his own life. Even right to the end, even that right that those last few moments, he was thankful for God's grace and for seeing his son's seed. And it was indeed a blessing. And so we see the hand of God in these precious words of a grandfather to his son or a father to his son, which exemplifies the promise that God the Father made to God the Son. That one day, even though he would taste death, he would see his seed. Just turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53 as we close up. Isaiah 53 verse 7. You're going to see here 
a promise that God the Father made to his own son when he knew he was going to die for the sins of the world. Isaiah 53 verse 7. Now this this passage was written at least 700 years before Christ went to a cross. And have a look, have a listen to these words because it, it, it cannot be any other person other than Jesus Christ. Written by the prophet Isaiah here, it says in 53.7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken, and he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord, that's Jehovah, to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. If you're here this morning and you're one of those ones who has received the promises of God through Jesus Christ, through the only begotten son that he sent into this world to rescue us. If you've received eternal life as a gift, through Jesus Christ, the Bible says that you are now in Christ. You are in him. And you know within your heart, if you've received him, that he is still alive. That he didn't die and get stuck in a grave. That he isn't, he isn't buried like every other religious leader that's ever come and gone throughout all of history. No, no, he's alive. Because he's living within our hearts too. And we know that he is living because he continues to lead us, to draw us to himself, and he continues to show, as he says, he's manifesting himself to us. If you've received him, if you have Jesus in your life today, then God bless you. Make sure you treasure him more than anything else that you have in this world because he is worth more than everything in this world. Never leave him, never forsake him, hold on to him with everything you have. But remember that you are the seed that God the Father said that he would see. All the children of God are going to be in, are in him and have received the blessing from God through him. We are the seed that he was promised. So God bless you if you're saved this morning. And remember that we have been chosen to be in him and to be holy Without sin, without covetousness, without idolatry, we are called to hold on to the word that he has given to us and to love him with everything we have because in him we have life and there is no life outside of him. God bless you. The Lord bless you today. Thank you.